Well, good morning, City Light Church. My name is John Randall. I am actually the college director here for our college ministry at City Light. And it is my joy and my privilege to be unpacking God's Word this morning as we continue our summer sermon series in Romans 8. Uh, As a church, we've actually encouraged one another to memorize select verses from Romans chapter 8. And this morning, our text actually kicked off with one of those verses. So let's see if I can do this from memory. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And it says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How did I do? Did I get it? All right, I got it. Awesome. Uh, It took me like a year to memorize my kids' names, so I figure if I can, and I forget them half the time, so I figure if I can memorize a Bible verse, that's not half bad. Um, Now, if I'm honest, I worked really hard to memorize that verse this week, in part because I had to preach this morning, uh, but mostly because I need to remind myself of the truth that is in that verse. I don't know about you, but I find it hard to believe the truth that is contained in Romans 8. 18. I want to make the comparison that Paul is saying not to make there. I want to say, no, our present suffering is worth comparing to our future glory. In the summer of uh, 2009, uh, I just graduated college. Uh, I was set to embark on an internship doing college ministry under Gavin Johnson. And uh, I was engaged uh, to my amazing girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, Lacey. And uh, we were to be married that August. Uh, well, about two weeks before we got married, uh, I got that phone call that you just never want to get. Uh, it was from my parents, and it was saying that my dad had been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, now, initially, the prognosis looked good. Uh, the treatments seemed to be working. Uh, but less than two years later, my dad took a turn for the worse. And uh, the cancer became ultra-aggressive. It began to attack his body, uh, and he lost basic human functions seemingly overnight. On January 6, 2012, about four months before Lace and I were to have our first child, my dad passed away. I was 26 when I buried my dad, and he had never met his grandkids. It's present sufferings like that that make me wrestle with Romans 8.18. They make me ask, does the glory of Christ that awaits me really outweigh my present sufferings? Because it's hard for me to see that. As I've gotten to know many of you in this church, and I've heard your stories, and I, I've heard the pain and the toil and the struggle and the suffering that you are facing. Another loved one who died, a miscarriage, a suicide, depression, chronic illness, another terminal diagnosis, a divorce, a lost job, a wayward child, whatever it is, I can't help but wonder if you too struggle to believe Romans 8, 18. Maybe you're here this morning and you're going through suffering And you're asking, is this Jesus thing really worth it? Is the salvation that he provides and the way that the scriptures make it sound, is it that good? Or is it a pipe dream that's too good to be true? Church, let me say emphatically that Jesus is not only worth it, but that what he offers you in his salvation is not just a band-aid to life's problems. It's a whole new kind of life. What we're going to read in this, uh, these verses this morning is unbelievably radically good news 
for you and for me. As we go through these verses, it is going to describe a future hope, a future glory for the Christian that is so unbelievable that as you read it, a Holy Spirit-infused hope should well up inside of you that you begin to groan, not in despair, but in hope, with patience, with endurance, dare I say even rejoicing, because you know what is coming for those who trust in Christ. What is coming for the Christian in the future is unbelievably radically good news. It's going to blow us away this morning. I'll admit that I'm not where Paul was at when he wrote Romans 8.18. I'm just not. And I think in part it's because I have failed to develop a good theology of the salvation that is to come. See, I'm so buried in my present suffering and the brokenness of this world that that I can't even imagine what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. And so therefore, I I just kind of give up on thinking about it. Well, Paul is going to say, no, don't give up on thinking about it. What Paul is laying out for in this text is not just good theology for life after death. No, it's actually fuel for our souls. It's imagery for our imaginations. It's patience for the longing of our hearts that we might actually suffer in hope. How? By grasping what the future holds for those who trust in Christ. I've titled my message, From Groaning to Glory. From Groaning to Glory. Because we need to actually activate our groaning. Our groaning for the hope that is to come. And so this text is actually going to lay out three types of groaning. And each one is designed to point us to the future hope, to say that, hey, even though we have present sufferings, there is a future hope that, it, that is worth groaning for. And so the first uh, type of groaning that we see in the text is this. If you're taking notes, this is point number one. You can write this down. The creation groans for liberation. The creation groans for liberation. We see this starting in Romans 8, verse 19. It says this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In these verses, we see that the the physical created universe is actually figuratively groaning to be set free because it is under the curse of sin. See, when the original humans, Adam and Eve, sinned, the effects of sin, death, decay, and destruction, not only fell on humanity, but it also fell on our planet. And so, we don't have to look very far to see this, right? It doesn't take very long to uh, observe our world and know that something is not right about the place that we live in. And and creation grieves over this. It actually angers over this. It's longing to be liberated. It groans. The text actually tells us that creation will groan for two reasons. The first is that the creation groans to be free from corruption, to be free from corruption. Our planet is stuck in an endless cycle of futility because of God's judgment over sin. In other words, our planet has lost its ability to be productive. It's lost its ability to be fruitful, which is originally what it was created for. And so we see breakdown everywhere. Let me give you some examples. Today's beautiful flowers that are going to bloom, tomorrow 
they're going to die and become the dead organisms that help new flowers grow. It's just stuck in this cycle of death. Nature seems to be at war with itself. We see animals constantly attacking one another. We look around and we see things like hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, famines, and the humidity of Nebraska, and we know that there is something wrong with this place. Something has gone wrong. 5,000 years from now, not a single person on the planet is going to know that you or this city ever existed. Even the best experiences we have are tainted by pain because they're fleeting. They don't last. But the planet is not left spinning out of control. No, God has actually broken this death cycle on the cross. In Jesus, we see that God has enacted a salvation plan that includes setting free the very ground that you and I walk on from any effect of sin. This is what the creation groans for. The second reason the creation groans is the creation groans for the sons of God to be revealed, the sons of God to be revealed. A massive misconception in Christianity is that in the end, God's going to come back. He's going to gather up all the Christians. We will escape this earth, and God will blow up the planet. That is not, I don't know where that came from, but let me be the first to say today that, like, that is not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, it actually teaches the opposite. The Bible doesn't teach that God's going to come down and snatch us out to heaven. No, God's actually going to bring heaven with him, and that's going to change this planet. God's bringing heaven to earth. God is remaking this planet. God is renewing this earth. Likewise, our creation planet, earth, is not looking to be set free from humanity. No, it actually wants the real, true humanity to finally stand up and take care of the planet in the ways that it was always meant to. Our planet is like a dog, a dog that wants a good owner. It doesn't want the owner that's going to chain him up and throw him outside not take care of him and don't feed him. They want a good owner, an owner that's going to love him and take care of him and feed him. As humans, we were meant to cultivate and take care of this world. But instead, we've pillaged it. We've abused it. We've used its resources for our selfish desires. See, it's not like, hey, the planet sinned and now we have mosquitoes. Like, that's not how it works. No, we sinned and now the planet is subjected to futility. We are what is wrong with this earth. But here's the deal. Our salvation in Jesus is what's going to save this planet. Our salvation is what is going to rescue this planet. So in other words, Jesus is like the true Captain Planet, except he's not just going to end pollution. No, Jesus is actually going to bring a fruition back to this earth by restoring it back to its rightful owners, namely God's family, the sons of God, the sons and daughters of God. And we who believe in Jesus will rule this earth in the way that Adam and Eve always were supposed to. Creation longs to see who those people are going to be. City Light, can you imagine with me the freedom that is coming to creation? Consider with me for a moment the city of Omaha free from every presence of sin. The first thing that pops into my mind is that we are finally going to drive down streets that are free from every dang pothole. Can I get an amen on that? Because that's going to be phenomenal. I can't wait for that. But but on a more serious note, 
we are not going to be able to recognize this place free from every presence of sin. This means that every home we go into won't know divorce or abuse. Every school that we send our kids to will be devoid of bullying and depression. Every government building will be free and full of selfless and humble political leaders. Every business we work at and shop at will be free from anxiety and greed. Every door will remain unlocked, for there will be no fear of theft. Weapons will be retooled to become instruments of kindness. Every relationship we have will be marked by genuine love instead of lust, instead of suspicion, instead of using for social gain. And every hospital, every prison, every homeless shelter, every halfway house, every graveyard is going to have a sign on it that says permanently closed. That is our future. That is the future of this city. If a visitor were to come here and we told them this place used to be sinful, they would not believe it. That's how changed it's going to be. City Light, if that doesn't ignite you with some kind of hope, if that doesn't stir something in you, a groaning for that day, then you have no idea what Jesus is offering you. What Jesus offers us in the gospel is not a good news of our escape from planet Earth. It is a comprehensive rescue plan of the entire cosmos. That is what creation groans for. Verse 22 says that this groaning is like the pains of childbirth. I've been with my wife for all three of our children's births. And uh, most of the time, I was just kind of a a helpless idiot standing there, not sure really what to do. Um, But I I think I asked the doctor or thought in my head about a hundred times, is that supposed to do that? Is that that supposed to happen? Is that supposed to look this way? Um, I I didn't know what to do or what to expect. Um, But here's something I didn't do. When my wife was in the middle of a contraction and in the middle of labor pains, I never went over to her and whipped out my cell phone and said, hey, can we grab a selfie, honey? Can, can we do that? Like, I'm not that big of an idiot. Uh, I didn't do that. But I was given strict orders by my wife that, the, hey, the minute that baby comes out, you better be snapping as many pictures as you can. On Instagram, you don't see pictures of the labor pains. You see pictures of the mom and the dad embracing their child for the first time. Why? Because that's where the hope and the love and the joy and the care is. That's what makes the pain worth it. That's what the pregnancy was all about. Church, there's coming a day where this world will throw away its memories of pain. And it will embrace God's kids for the first time. And there's no picture that's going to be able to capture the glory of that day. That's our future. But this text shows us that uh, creation isn't the only thing that groans. We groan as well as God's people. So this leads me to the second type of groaning that reminds us of the hope that is coming is that the church groans. The church groans for redemption. Picking the text back up in Romans 8, we see that this starts in verse 23. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. 
So just like creation groans, the church, God's people, groan inwardly. This means there's a deep sense, a deep ache inside of our souls where we long for the world to be the way that it should be, where we know that, that, that something has gone wrong in this world. And so we groan. We long for Jesus to come back and bring about fully what he's accomplished for us on the cross, namely our redemption. But as we groan, we don't groan in the ways that the world groans. No, as the church, as God's, fam- or as God's people, we groan as God's family. We groan as God's adopted family. Now, now, why is that significant, or how is that different than the world? I believe it's different in at least three ways. As God's family, when we groan, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. When you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit is given to you, all of him. And he's given to you as a sign that you are in God's family, that you are adopted into his family. Now, this word first fruits is actually a harvest term. If you've got a good first fruits, it's proof that what is to come in the harvest is going to be really good. Elsewhere, Paul will refer to the Holy Spirit as kind of like a down payment or a deposit to the inheritance that is to come. So consider our down payment. Consider the first fruits of our inheritance to come. It is the Holy Spirit, God, the same one who rose Jesus from the dead that's making you look more like Jesus. He is living inside of you, and that's just the beginning of what is to come. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine something better, something more than the Holy Spirit living inside of me. The only thing that comes to mind The only thing that seems better than God living inside of me is seeing God face to face. And that is what our future holds. This means that the best days, guys, are not behind us. All our best days are in front of us. And one day, all of our bad days are going to be behind us. As God's family, when we groan, we do so because we get new bodies without sin. That's the second way in which we groan differently than the world. Verse 23 says that we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But, but wait, if you were here last week, you heard Chris preach about what it means to be adopted into the family of God. And if you've placed your faith or trust in Christ, that means you are a member of God's family. So how can we be waiting for it? How can we be looking forward to it? Well, I think the text tells us specifically what we are waiting for, and it's this. It's our redemption of our bodies. So while it is true that if you trust in Christ, you are right now currently a member of God's family, you don't quite yet look like your father, who is God in heaven. There comes a point where every child will look like their parent. That day for us hasn't come yet. To put it another way, it's like we have the legal certificate saying we are adopted into God's family, but we haven't quite moved into the house yet. God is bringing that house. God is preparing that place for us to move into. That's what we are waiting for. One day, guys, you and I are going to come up out of the ground. Wherever we are buried, we are going to come up to a whole new life, a physical body that never knows pain, that never knows death, that never knows a temptation to sin, we will be perfect like God is perfect. I talk to many students who will tell me, John, I don't want Jesus to come back yet. I want to live some of my life. 
I, I, I want to graduate school. I want to get married. I, I want to have kids. I want to have a career. And, and I think I understand where they're coming from with this, but they're missing the point of what Jesus is offering here. See, when, when Jesus offers us this future redemption, it's not that we escape this life. It's that we get all of life back. We get life, real physical life, tangible life, the way that it was intended to be. The difference is, is it's without sin. See, your future is not to be some floating spirit somewhere in heaven, knowing an existence that's completely foreign to you. No, your future is to have a real physical body that walks on this earth, and you will know an existence that is completely wiped clean of any sin. The third way we groan differently as the world, as God's family, is we don't suffer in vain. We don't suffer in vain. Suffering is actually a part of being part of God's family, being his son or daughter. Verse 17 actually shows us that, that if we're God's kids, we're in his family, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, the path to our future glory involves one of suffering. There's this lie that saturates much of the church in America and Christian culture, and it it goes like this, that if I'm a Christian, then I should have a sweet, awesome, cushy, comfortable life. That, That if I give my life to Jesus, if I serve in his church, if I tithe, if I share my faith, if I avoid the quote unquote bad sins, then God owes me some sort of comfortable life. Guys, that's just not true. And we don't have to look beyond uh, much of anything. We just have to look at the example of Jesus himself to know that that's not true. Jesus was the most perfect human being the world has ever known. And yet Jesus suffered more than anyone. If Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, had to learn obedience through suffering, as the book of Hebrews says, then why would we as his followers think that we have a different path in our lives? But consider with me what God brought about with the suffering of Jesus. On the cross, we have the worst suffering the world has ever known. There's a lot of bad suffering in this world, but I can't think of a worse piece of suffering than watching God die. God dying, to me, has to be the worst example of suffering. And yet, it's on the cross, it's in the midst of Jesus' suffering that God brought about the salvation of the world. Look at the fruit that came from that. If God can bring salvation in the worst suffering the world has ever known, imagine what he can bring out of your suffering and out of your pain. See, listen, whatever, or, or whether you're a Christian or not, here this morning. Suffering is coming your way in some way, shape, or form. In some degree, suffering is going to hit you in this life. And the question is, how are you going to face it? If you're not a Christian in this room, might I plead with you? Jesus can make your suffering not in vain because Jesus can turn your suffering from a precursor to death into a precursor for your inheritance that's to come. 
That's what Jesus provides for you. Your suffering is not incidental. It's not accidental. It's instrumental. Because God, through suffering, wants to make you look more and more and more and more like Jesus. That should give us unbelievable hope. Verses uh, 24 and 25 talk about this hope. And they say that hope isn't something that we see. Hope is something that we don't see. I don't know about you, but I've always kind of, Paul, what are you talking about? How can I hope for something I don't see? How do I do that? Well, well, I think it starts by understanding what Paul's talking about when he uses the word hope. For hope, uh, or for Paul, the word hope isn't this wishful thinking. It's actually a conviction. It's an assurance of what is to come. So in other words, I could say, I hope that the Nebraska Cornhuskers do well next year with Scott Frost, right? I think most of us are in that boat if you're a Husker fan. You hope that they do well, but the reality is we have no idea. We have no idea how their season is going to go uh, next year. But let me use the word hope in a different sentence. My wife, when she was in her third trimester, she would look at me and say, I hope the baby comes today. Now, nobody in their right mind is going to look at her and say, that's crazy talk. That's foolishness. That's wishful thinking. No, because she's pregnant, you can see that the baby is coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And for the Christian, our future hope is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. We have hope that resurrected bodies are coming our way because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the hope we are saved in. That's our guarantee. Why would God justify you? Why would God sanctify you? Why would God give us his word? Why would God give us the church? Why would God do anything in your life right now only for you to end up six feet under never to return? The the rest of the scriptures make no sense. Why send Jesus at all if we cannot have a relationship with him forever? Well, that's precisely what Jesus is providing. He's going to redeem you and me from the presence of sin as one who is part of his family. Lastly, we see a third type of groaning that not only provides hope for the future, but is something we experience actually in the here and now. So the third point is that the Holy Spirit groans in intercession. The Holy Spirit groans in intercession. We see these, or we see this in verses 26 and 27. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Essentially what these verses are communicating is that in the same way that the cross gives you hope for the future, the Holy Spirit gives you hope in the here and now. And the Holy Spirit gives you this hope by actually groaning alongside you, groaning from within you, interceding on your behalf by asking God that your suffering would actually conform you more and more to his will. I see that the Holy Spirit helps us in at least three ways in this text. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. That is the first. He helps us in our weakness. What I find fascinating is that that word weakness is singular, not plural. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. It says he helps us in our weakness. 
See, I think so often we think of our lives lived on this platform of, hey, sometimes I'm operating out of my strengths and sometimes I'm operating out of my weaknesses. But what Paul is saying here is like, no, because of sin, your entire existence is lived out of one of weakness. And if we don't see that, if we don't constantly come to grips with that, then we will choke the Holy Spirit's help in our lives. I love the way Ray Ortland says it. He says this, For weak people to live the Christian life in a way that is humane and sustainable, rather than defeating and shaming, we need good news more than good challenge. Weak sinners, continually reassured by grace, will accomplish more for Christ than they would if continually confronted by demand. I'm thankful that the Spirit meets us not in our strength, but in our weakness, where alone His help enters in. The second way the Spirit helps is that the Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers. There are times when suffering is so dense and so strong that we don't know what to say. We don't even know what to say to God. We don't know how to formulate prayers to Him. I wonder if you've been in a place where maybe the suffering was so intense and so deep that your tears blinded you from even looking up towards heaven. You don't know what to pray. It seems impossible to see that God would even be at work, let alone with you in the middle of that suffering. I wonder if you've been there. Dave and April Gullery are members of our city group, and uh, these last three years have been incredibly painful for them. They have been in the midst of a season of suffering that is like this. In March of 2016, Dave was diagnosed with pancreatic necrosis. This is a life-threatening situation. The doctors told Dave that he wasn't going to make it through the night, but he survived. However, he would remain in the hospital for the next two months, and he dealt with incredible pain and spiking fevers. Before he could even get out of the hospital, before he could get back to work, his wife, April, was diagnosed with cancer, and she began radiation treatments the following week. And it seems that they can't even catch a break here in 2018 because April's father, this summer, after a six-month battle with cancer, just passed away. This family has been hit hard with suffering. When I asked April how she managed to hang on to hope these past three years, she said something remarkable to me. She said, John, I have never been alone. I've never been alone. I was specifically taken aback about how she talked about this experience where she uh, had the peace and the comfort of the Holy Spirit specifically in her radiation treatments. Of all the places you have to feel alone, a radiation treatment has to be one of them. You're put in this room all alone and they have to literally push a button because the door that closes you in is so big. She said she felt claustrophobic. And so she asked the doctor, how long is this going to last? And they said five to ten minutes. And so she said, okay, God, I'm going to give you this five to ten minutes. I'm going to pray while I am receiving these treatments. Well, due to complications uh, with her situation, every treatment turned from five to ten minutes into 45 minutes. But April never complained. And she told me the reason she didn't complain is because she got to experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit for a half hour more 
She ended our conversation this week by telling me, and I quote, through my suffering, I never felt alone and knew that there was a plan, even if it was only to share how good God was in the suffering. I want to be able to say what April said when suffering comes my way. As I've gotten to know Dave and April, I can tell you they're the real deal. They're super genuine. And their encouragement of hope to our city group can only come from the help that the Holy Spirit has given them. Church, we must not hope alone. We must hope together. The third way that the Holy Spirit helps us, the Holy Spirit helps us seek God's will. For many of us, we don't always know what to pray when it comes to our suffering. And we don't know how to pray for God's will specifically in our present situation. I'm sure Dave and April didn't know how to pray for God's will in the midst of their suffering. But here's the deal. Even if they didn't know how to pray that, even if you don't know how to pray for God's will in the midst of your suffering, there is somebody who does, the Holy Spirit. And he is interceding for you. He is praying for you that you would actually be conformed to God's will. Furthermore, that the Spirit actually empowers us to seek out God's will. I believe he did this work in the life of Jesus. Remember when Jesus prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done, right before he went to the cross. That same prayer can be your prayer. The Holy Spirit can help you pray that in the midst of your suffering. Guys, these verses aren't just saying, hey, suffering happens, but God's sovereign, get over it. No, no, no. These verses instead are saying that God is rewriting your suffering into his will that you may have a future glory that pales in comparison. We cannot always see that, but the Holy Spirit helps us seek it out. Today you may be suffering and you're wondering, what is God's will in the midst of my suffering? I can't answer the specifics of that for you because I don't know your situation, but here's what I can promise you. I can promise you that the Holy Spirit wants to show you the hope that you can have in Jesus. I don't know why God allows suffering, but I do know what God can do in the midst of suffering because I've seen what he did on the cross. And so if you're here this morning and you're depressed, you're chronically ill, you've been diagnosed with cancer, you've lost loved ones, you've been abused, you've lost your job, your home, you, have, you, you come from a broken family. You're just simply finding it hard to pray in the midst of your suffering. Allow me to share the best news you're going to hear all week. There is hope. There is hope. You know why I know there's hope? Because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross. Because what the Holy Spirit is doing right now. And because there is going to come a day when God will come back. He will remake this earth. He will bring in a new creation. You and I will know bodies that do not have sin. And we will come into the joy of the Lord and see God face to face. That future will never disappoint. Amen? Let's pray. Father... I ask that your Holy Spirit would move in this place. Father, I know there are people here who are hurting. God, we live in a world that's broken. But God, I'm so glad that you are not a God that's out of control. I take comfort and joy and rejoicing in the fact that you are going to rewrite our stories in a way that we can't even fathom. 
So, Father, may we leave this place groaning, not the way the world does, but as your family, seeing that creation groans along with us, groaning for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies, and groaning alongside the Holy Spirit who groans with us, that we might experience the comfort and peace and the hope of what is to come. Oh, Father, be with us now. It's in your son's mighty name that I pray. Amen.